a lot of my ideas had already been formulating before I took that trip. And they really centered on the urban condition. Um, why was there so much poverty and inequality and, you know, municipal corruption within city halls? Like, sort of what was the, what was the force behind all those different issues? Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. I want to thank you for joining this show. I am extremely excited about our guest today. Scott is the founder and manager of the Market Urbanism Report. And if you haven't heard about it yet, the Market Urbanism Report is a media company whose sole goal is to advance the market urbanism idea so that it becomes better known by the public and potentially utilized within cities. Along with founding and managing Market Urbanism Report, he writes columns for Forbes, The Independent Institute, and HousingOnline.com gives regular speeches and media interviews as well. While recently completing a three-year cross-country trip to study urban issues in the U.S., he became fascinated with the various ideas and issues that seemed to hinder prosperity in the various urban environments that he visited. During this trip, he started what is now known as the Market Urbanism Report to broadcast the idea of market urbanism to others. As I mentioned previously, the goal is to advance the idea of market urbanism in the hopes that it would produce cheaper housing, faster transport, improved public services, and altogether a better quality of life. In this episode, we are going to discuss the goal of market urbanism, the underlying fundamentals of market urbanism, the various urban centers that Scott traveled to on his cross-country tour, and some examples of market urbanism success stories that currently exist in the U.S. I'm excited to dive into this show. And as always, if you have enjoyed the show, I would ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the show to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on here. You've got some really interesting points, and I can't wait to dive into them. But first, I gave a little introduction uh, before the show here, and I want, in your own words, kind of a little bit more of your background, maybe the different uh, profit centers that you have personally or interests that you have, and then we'll kind of jump into the, to the meat of the topic. Okay. Above all, I'd say I'm a journalist. Um, I've been a journalist for several years now. I write columns for Forbes and the Independent Institute, Governing Magazine, and uh, various other publications. I am also the owner of the Market Urbanism Report, which I know we'll get to in a little bit. But um, the Market Urbanism Report is a small think tank right now that advocates for free market urban policy. And we are trying to uh, turn that into a more established institution in the sense of getting kind of some foundational financial support to uh, make it into a full-time think tank that has employees and broad marketing strategies. And then um, 
I'd say the, the main way to introduce myself also, and probably one that um, a lot of my followers on social media are familiar with is I was the guy who uh, did a three year cross country trip several years ago uh, to do, to learn about us cities. So I lived for a month each in 30 different cities starting in Miami and going clockwise around the country. And um, yeah, I know you're in Fort Worth. I spent a month in the big four Texas cities of Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin. Those were four of my stops. And um, I was, I really did that trip to learn about the different issues that cities are facing at ground level, uh, the different it, city by city and really uh, get a sense of like what the modern best practices are for U.S. cities. And so I'm going to be turning that experience and the larger market urbanism concept into a book that I hope to publish uh, later this year or early next year that talks about um, market urbanism style reforms. Interesting. So uh, basically immerse yourself, uh, immersion into all these different large cities. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So what's your, what's your actual background? I'd say it would be as a journalist. Um, okay. I, I started, uh, I started kind of as like a blogger or freelancer in my twenties. And I'd say I would, I became more of what you could call a professional journalist in the last five or six years. And so I'm writing, uh, I'm a staff. I'm also a staff writer for uh, Tax Credit Advisor, which is a a magazine that specializes in affordable housing finance, but also just doing writing regular columns as a um, for all these different magazines that I mentioned before is kind of my keeps me busy. Right. And um, as far as educational background, it was studying communications um, at Bridgewater College, but I. Uh, I really got a, I'd say more of my background per se would, as far as like becoming really interested in urban issues was simply living in cities um, and being interested in being a journalist, but also living in cities and, and wanting my, and realizing at some point that the focus of my journalism should really be urban issues um, and the way that cities were built and sort of the, the policy issues that they deal with in the modern context. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was digging at is, is what, uh, what stoked that interest? Uh, it sounds like just being a part of a larger, larger city, just seeing, I guess, were there certain pain points that you noticed that kind of spurred action? Is that, is that essentially what happened? Yeah, I'd, I'd say um, once I was out of college, I was, living in New York City for a couple of years. And I was really intrigued by just the problems that permeate. I mean, on one hand, New York City is a great place and it's such an interesting, diverse, dynamic place, but it has so many problems just in the sense of all the homelessness and the housing affordability issues and sort of the transit um, dysfunction that seems to be a, a day-to-day part of living in New York city and the traffic congestion and the way that cars kind of dominate the, the civic spaces. 
And so I saw all these problems and I began to research them quite a bit and get some background about them. And that was, there had been a lot of research and a lot of writing that I'd already done about cities before I went on that three year cross country trip, which started in late 2015. Um, And so it, it was sort of like a lot of my ideas had already been formulating before I took that trip. And they really, centered on the urban condition. Um, Why was there so much poverty and inequality and, you know, municipal corruption within city halls? Like, sort of what was the the force behind all those different issues? Right. That's that's a big topic. (laughs) Yeah, that is a big talk. Uh, So that kind of morphed into... Well, your writing obviously morphed into being dedicated to that issue, and which came about this market urbanism report. Can you discuss kind of creating that platform, what that means for the lay real estate developer or entrepreneur? Yeah. So part of one of the early influences as I was studying cities in my 20s and both researching the background and also seeing them at street level was uh, one early influence was a blog called Market Urbanism, which was the blog was designed uh, to be an inquiry into how free market classical liberal ideas can be applied to urban issues. And so I think it, one of the main focuses there was housing, uh, the way that because housing affordability is really at the root of so many of these problems and the inability to build lots of housing close to jobs so that people are having to live in sprawling patterns instead. And Mm -hmm. the market urbanism blog really went into um, the details of why that is. Like basically it was a lot of zoning and regulatory problems that prevented housing supply from keeping up with demand and prevented housing from getting built in areas of, of fast job growth. And so I had been imbued with a lot of those ideas before even going on my trip. And then about halfway through uh, my cross-country trip, I had really seen at, at that point how a lot of the lack of, the lack of ability to let markets function in cities was really hurting a lot of cities around the country. And I was seeing it firsthand. And I was seeing the sort of, um, you know, every, everything from the sprawl that affects a lot of Texas cities to the homelessness that affects a lot of California cities. I saw in really in each case that the problems were caused by the inability to let markets function in these cities. And so I started market urbanism report about halfway through my trip. It was um, a spinoff of the original market urbanism blog. And it was really designed to make market urbanism more of a, mainstream concepts in the urban dialogue. And Mm so, um, yeah, in 2017, I started Market Urbanism Report, um, and I've been uh, growing it ever since, and it has has pretty active social media uh, conversations at this point. But yeah, that's, that's really the point of my organization is to advance the idea of free market urbanism. Interesting, and through my research on your topic here, I noticed there's three main points, which is housing, transit, and public services is what I yeah. picked up. So essentially 
the goal is not necessarily is it privatization of these three main topics or what is the goal because <clears throat> at least public services that one i see as being a tough one yeah. um, to tackle with complete privatization but can you can you kind of touch on that sure so i think if i were to define market urbanism more in more detail i'd say on one hand it's a theory mm -hmm. um in the sense that it's it's asking how cities would function in a fully classical liberal maybe laissez-faire privatized system and so that is a theoretical question it's the type of thing that is never going to happen politically in the united states uh, for some of the reasons you mentioned like we're not just going to privatize all our services but market urbanism at, at a philosophical level asks what how might cities function if we were to do that mm -hmm. um on the other hand really the the element of market urbanism that's much more interesting to me is market urbanism as a set of pragmatic policy ideas that can actually be applied to our modern political context and so taking the existing framework that we have in cities and saying how can a more market oriented alternative, you know, not full libertarianism, but how can a more market-oriented alternative be applied to our existing policy paradigm? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I break it down as housing, transit, and public services, but really it's more housing and transit. Mm -hmm. um, and so for housing, I say, you know, let's explore ways that we can weaken zoning laws and other restrictive regulations that pre prevent organic urban growth and let housing kind of be built where the consumer wants it to, to be built, uh, where they choose to live in ways that they choose to live so that they can, they have a full slate of options of what they can purchase with their money. And then the market urbanism transportation uh, paradigm says now that they're able to live where and how they want to live, let's explore where and how they can get around as far as like, if the, if the consumer is allowed to choose how they want to get around, uh, what sort of market alternatives pop up to satisfy that demand. And so it's the market urbanism take on transportation is against subsidizing one form of transport and regulating another form of transport. It's, it's a basically saying, throw out those subsidies and regulations and just let, um, let, transportation, let, let transportation kind of unfold based on how the market would work organically. Okay, gotcha. So it's, it's more of a, an ideal uh, kind of philosophy, but really it's, it's allowing the market to decide essentially what's needed where instead of instead of a centralized uh, government choosing where it should go essentially is that right that's right right yeah and, and i think the um the centralized government model is what we have now mm -hmm. in other words we have um <clears throat> and i look at a lot of suburban sprawl as effectively being um the anti-market urbanism it's sort of like what you get when we have a centralized system. So we have so much sprawl because the zoning 
effectively says that this is what we have to have. Um, if you're entering a market, there's not much allowable multifamily to be built anywhere. Um, I know Texas is, is kind of an exception in a lot of ways because it's less regulated. But um, generally, when you're entering a market, it's like everything has been zoned for single family sprawl. If you're a new home buyer entering the market, that's a vast majority of what you have to choose from. And, um, and then there's a, there's a whole transportation paradigm that's been laid out for you that mostly involves free roads or, or roads that are free at the point of use that get you around in this sprawling paradigm. And so it's kind of like, this is a, um, this is a form of land use and organization that has largely been hardwired by the government rather than the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had a good discussion previously on, a, on another show with uh, the president of the near South Side, which you might not have been able to meet that area when you were in Fort Worth, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting area here in Fort Worth, and it kind of rejected the Euclidean zoning, uh, land type zoning, right. and became more of a mixed use you know, it was a it was a part of town that you know it was downtown adjacent that started booming. You know, soon after the war, uh, just getting outside of you know downtown, very diverse. And um, then it it started to decline, and and then they brought back this type of basically form based code essentially. Right. And then uh, now that that part of town has started to really thrive, and it's it's not under the city's. It's under an alternative zoning code that the near South Side has actually this this group has put together outside of the city zoning, and it, it's really been a case in that you know showing that market actually you know they need dense housing in that area, and so it's a hospital district. People have started to actually really develop that area um, because the the zoning allowed for it. Right. And yeah, when I was talking earlier about the distinction between market urbanism as a theory and market urbanism as a set of pragmatic reforms, I might just as soon look at a situation like that, form-based zoning. You know, it's, it's still zoning. It still has some regulation. I'm sure I would look at most form-based codes and find something about them I don't like. But, you know, I still look at it as, as a, a dramatic improvement from the Euclidean model. And it's, it's um, form-based codes are generally designed to allow, to be more permissive as far as what can actually be built on a given land plot. And so I look at it as being a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It's definitely more flexible. Um, yeah. So, okay. We kind of discussed in a 30,000 foot view what what the idea of market urbanism is. Can you kind of dive into some of the basically case studies around the country that uh, you've either observed while you were on your tour or you've just, you found out about uh, since then, just kind of give some aspects of each. Yeah. So I could give, I think I could give you three that are all somewhat different. Um, Okay. One of them would be a neighborhood in Miami called Brickle which is directly adjacent to downtown. And starting in the mid-90s, Miami's city leadership decided that they wanted 
it, it was a single family neighborhood at that point, very low sprung. And uh, the city leadership decided that <clears throat> because they were getting a, a lot of capital and investment from Latin America, from all the people who wanted to buy second homes in Miami, that they decided to dramatically upzone the area. They, uh, they um, abolished the parking minimums, minimum parking requirements in the area. They put a lot of underground infrastructure and a lot of grade level infrastructure as well. And even some above grade infrastructure like um, the, the rail people mover. And so they basically said, this is where we want a lot of growth to happen and the growth came. And so there's, uh, I'd say in the last two decades, it's probably, or probably two and a half decades at this point, there have been dozens and dozens of skyscrapers built in the Brickell area, basically this little one square mile area. Um, that would be an example of if you decide to liberalize even one place in the city and really put infrastructure there and accommodate it for growth, the growth will in many cases come. And so you've got this brand new skyscraper neighborhood that is the type of thing we used to build a lot of in the United States before it became regulated away. So I, I look at Brickell in Miami as one example. Um, another example would be Minneapolis, which just passed a, a bill that um, effectively a citywide upzoning that's mm -hmm. more incremental in nature. It says that there can't be neighborhoods that are zoned exclusively for single family, but can mm -hmm. include duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, depending on, on the location. So that would be a, another example. It's not, it's not like Brickle in the sense that it's going to be a bunch of high rises, but it will, it could effectively double or triple the housing stock without really changing the character of Minneapolis too much. Um, yeah, I've noted, uh, there's a few cities that have done that now, I, th I believe. Um, I was thinking there's a couple out west that have done that as well. And it's it's going to be interesting to see what comes from that. Um, the state of Oregon did that, and there's a bunch of other states that are trying to, mm -hmm. uh, but they're hitting political roadblocks. So... Um, and yeah, I think a third example <clears throat> would be, uh, Houston, which doesn't have zoning. It has, uh, it does have some other regulations that, that, uh, replace zoning and effectively function as zoning, but by and large, it's a, it's a pretty, it's relatively unregulated compared to other cities in the U S. And I think that has helped to really spur a lot of housing production in the, in the city core, like as opposed to it just being all sprawl. I think that you have a lot of high rise tower. I mean, Houston has one of the highest numbers of high rise towers of any U S city. And it also has a lot of, um, it has a lot of what you would call missing middle type housing in its core. Things like, townhomes, duplexes, um, maybe single family homes that have really high lot coverage and, and look more urban than you might expect. And so um, I'd say Houston would be another example, not only just spurring a lot of housing production, but also being a city that because it builds so much housing, it has remained affordable 
um, even as it has had really fast growth. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of coastal cities on the East and West coast don't really seem to get, like they have a lot of growth and investment, but they don't build a lot of housing. And so that's why you see the, the crazy price appreciation, which you don't necessarily see in Houston. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I didn't even, you know, thinking about the, this, this topic, I, I didn't even think about Houston, but um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it actually, they, I know that a HUD report came out several years ago saying that, that it actually ended veteran homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's still true, but, basically what they did was they built three or four pretty sizable complexes in different parts of the city uh, that were going to house the veteran homeless. And so um, obviously if the housing exists for them, then they're not living on the streets anymore. And I think the reason they were able to do that is, you know, it's uh, it's a city that is more permissive to new construction and does not have the same NIMBY barriers and also it's just a lot cheaper to build you know Mm -hmm. it's like i i read some analysis where for those veteran homeless facilities the price per unit was something like a hundred thousand dollars the price per unit in san francisco is like half a million when they try (laughs) to build affordable housing and i think a lot of that is due to the higher land costs but it's also just you know the, the regulatory red tape that has to be endured when you try to build something like that. Right. Yeah. The, to get a permit in Houston is much, much easier than I would imagine it would be to get one in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's uh, to go along with that, you know, you were talking about housing. There is that housing to support the workforce in Houston more so than, than in San Francisco. You, the work force uh, can't afford to live in the city. And so, you know, to travel into the city every day causes a little more expense and harder to find that, that core workforce that you really need to, to uh, construct these, these buildings as well. Yeah. Interesting. So do you have any specific uh, developments or neighborhoods aside from the one in Miami that, that we can kind of like dissect a little bit more of uh, why why it was successful? Um, yeah, I'd say that I'd say that every city, to some degree, has its areas of targeted investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just thinking like San Francisco, the the general waterfront area where the Golden State Warriors Arena was built and the Giants Stadium was built. It's called Mission Bay, I believe. You know, there's um, there's been some effort to build condos in that area to sort of support the the amenities. Um, I know in New York City there is uh, there have been efforts for a long time now to clean up the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn and uh, build. You know, because it used to be an industrial canal, it are it still is to some degree, um, but they're trying to bring more of like a modern urban vibe to the area. So like, you know, mixed use retail with, uh, retail with rooftops overhead, uh, classic lifestyle amenity type neighborhood, but they just don't get it done. You know, it's kind of like, um, it, 
it has varying degrees of success around the country. Uh, you know, I think Eastern downtown Houston would be another example of where they're trying to, to bring that sort of like lifestyle amenity um, type concept into the core. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I'd say in the case of New York and San Francisco, again, it's like there's so much regulation that would prevent it. They kind of like won't just let the market come in and, and provide that itself. There's all these like um, hurdles that, that take place that prevent real density from going in those areas. Mm-hmm. So what do you think uh, that, that development there in Miami that we were talking about earlier, what do you think made that successful? Was it the bringing in transit or was it the, the goal to increase density? Do you think that spurred on kind of the growth or what, what factors do you think were the most important in that? Well, I think the most important factor in any situation is going to be the actual demand. Um, there's simply a lot of people who want to move to Miami. You know, the the metro area is routinely in the top five every year for net population growth because I think it's it's kind of just an immigrant hub. You know, like it's always been a place that Cubans want to escape to. Um, and increasingly as, as different Latin American jurisdictions become less stable, a lot of other Latin American countries have expats that go to Miami. Uh, so it's always been a place for investment. Um, and you know, a lot of, a lot of people just want to buy second homes and, and have them be in Miami just as an investment vehicle. So I think the main thing is the demand, and it's not like Brickell is the only place where it happens. There's a lot of new towers going in downtown and northern downtown. There's a lot going on South Beach. I mean, really, if you go all the way up to Fort Lauderdale, which is like an hour to the north, you know, there's condos all up and down the waterfront almost the entire way. So, I mean, I'd say the main thing is the demand. Um, the reason it happened in Brickell specifically, though, I do think it, 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 was, it was a targeted decision by the city. It was basically saying, we're going to increase the underground, like sewer capacity and, and um, you know, the, the traffic capacity and everything like that. And then it was just followed by the rezonings, you know, allowing for height where it was not allowed before. And so the demand just kind of followed. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's a big point. So the the infrastructure that was uh, brought in to help spur that growth was was extremely necessary. Did was that a public private partnership, or did, do you kind of know how that how that infrastructure came to be? Was that something purely the the uh, my city of Miami decided, hey, we're going to invest all this money in improving, uh, build it, and they will come kind of kind of deal. Was that, or was there enough private, was chicken or the egg, I guess, which came first? Was there right. private push to get that area improved, or was it the city wanted to see growth in that area, and then they, they made those infrastructure improvements first? Um, I think that the, 
the infrastructure improvements had to come first. And so it, it would be the case of a public, it, I, I don't believe it was any, it was really a public private partnership. Um, the Chamber of Commerce in Miami is pretty powerful. And I think that, that they obviously had their input, but I think the actual infrastructure is public. And there, there may have been, um, you know, in a lot of cases there's impact fees that, mm-hmm. Um, are charged of developers, and I believe that was the case in Brickell. Uh, but that would be an example, like when you charge impact fees on new development, and the money goes back into, you know, kind of building the infrastructure to accommodate the growth. You might say that's kind of a public-private partnership in a way, um, but the actual main maintenance of the services, I believe, are done by the city of Miami. Mm-hmm. Well, man, this has been a really interesting topic because it's something, something I deal with often uh, in, in my field uh, with civil engineering, with uh, private development, you know, the, the public versus private. A lot of times it's confrontational when really it could be, it could be beneficial for both parties if they play nicely together. Yeah. So I, I think that's really interesting to see how, you know, your round the country trip kind of highlighted areas where governments were playing nicely with developers or, or being more amiable to, to these developments and, and the impact they had on those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the thing is, is that I think that there are at least eight or 10 cities around the country that have their certain neighborhoods that could become the next brickle um, and the regulations just prevent it from happening. And, and it's, it's pretty unfortunate because last I checked brickle, that little one square mile neighborhood or, or the, actually, sorry, the greater downtown Miami area, which is a fraction of the landmass of the city was producing something like 35% of its tax revenue. So it's, it's clearly a very efficient um, form of, of development and land use. And I think it could be happening in every city. So an example of where it could be happening, but it doesn't happen would be a neighborhood like South Lake Union in Seattle. And so that's where uh, Amazon is headquartered and a lot of, it's like a lot of corporate growth, a lot of medical growth is in the general area in South Lake Union. It's a neighborhood just north of downtown Seattle. But the zoning is incredibly squat. It's like, I mean, many parcels are like 40, have like a 45 foot height minimum. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the type of thing where the difference between Seattle and Miami, there's heavy demand for living in both but the, the political climate in Seattle is more along the lines of, no, we need to, we need to prevent this place from quote unquote Manhattanizing, <laughs> you know, like right. allow these tall buildings. Um, and it's really a shame because if Seattle did, it would get all the monetary benefits as far as tax revenue that I just described taking place in Miami. And obviously it would, it, it would create a lot more housing for people. Uh, which Seattle has a housing shortage. And so I think it would, um, it would really improve the, the transit connectivity and use in the neighborhood. 
And so it's sort of like we have ways that we could be building modern cities just as we used to in the United States, but we literally don't allow it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I see that, you know, where I'm at right now here in Fort Worth, it's, uh, there are areas that, you know, this could be beneficial if we kind of stretched the regulations just, just a little, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Scott, I appreciate you coming on the show. I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of tell people how they can learn a little bit more uh, about, about market urbanism and then about you and, and your platform. And you want to go ahead and share a little bit. Sure. So you can learn about uh, market urbanism by going to marketurbanismreport.com, which is my blog. And um, if you're active on social media, we have, really active threads on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you had to fo follow one of them, I would suggest the Facebook group, Market Urbanism Report. Um, post every day, and there's always all kinds of good commentary on there. Definitely. Definitely. That's one I'm on and enjoy scrolling through every, every other day or so. <laughs> yeah. Try to catch all my feet there. So um, I appreciate you being on the show and uh, I'll include a link to your website on the webpage as well. So I appreciate it, Scott. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. I'll talk to you later. Hello and welcome everyone. I want to thank you for joining this show. I am extremely excited about our guest today. Scott is the founder and manager of the Market Urbanism Report. Now, if you haven't heard about it yet, the Market Urbanism Report is a media company whose sole goal is to advance the market urbanism idea so that it becomes better known by the public and potentially utilized within cities. Along with founding and managing Market Urbanism Report, he writes columns for Forbes, the Independent Institute, and HousingOnline.com gives regular speeches and media interviews as well. While recently completing a three-year cross-country trip to study urban issues in the U.S., he became fascinated with the various ideas and issues that seemed to hinder prosperity in the various urban environments that he visited. During this trip, he started what is now known as the Market Urbanism Report to broadcast the idea of market urbanism to others. As I mentioned previously, the goal is to advance the idea of market urbanism in the hopes that it would produce cheaper housing, faster transport, improved public services, and altogether a better quality of life. In this episode, we are going to discuss the goal of market urbanism, the underlying fundamentals of market urbanism, the various urban centers that Scott traveled to on his cross-country tour, and some examples of market urbanism success stories that currently exist in the U.S. I'm excited to dive into this show. And as always, if you have enjoyed the show, I would ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the show to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. <laughs> 